Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to our final World Cup edition of Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Denderen shortly. And Michael Edgley is taking his final week off before he returns home from his World Cup odyssey and he's in the main chair to host the show next week. Now, as we record the podcast on Monday evening uh, Australian time, it's less than 24 hours since what is already being regarded as, if not the greatest men's World Cup final of all time, then certainly one that is in the grand final of that discussion as Argentina had the game in their grasp on two occasions against the defending champions France, only to have to go to sports ultimate test of nerve to sort out the winner in a penalty shootout. Of course, under most circumstances, it'd be a fait accompli as to which story would lead the show. But sadly, after the disgraceful events of the Melbourne Derby on the weekend, that decision was not so easy. Ultimately, we've decided the game must win that argument. So we're delighted to have one of our favourite guests live from Buenos Aires, Marcela Mora y Araujo from The Guardian. Sleepless Marcela to reflect back on what was the final a final for the ages as Lionel Messi unequivocally ascended the pantheon of football's greats. And then we'll talk to one of Australian football's most forthright journalists from the ABC and keep up Daniel Garb and we'll do our best to unravel the mess which was the Victory City game and its heartbreaking legacy on Australian football. And then we will wrap it up with a little wrap of the World Cup in a World Cup corner. So Derek, uh, obviously, we did have a balancing act, the pendulum of, uh, at least in Australia, um, sporting stories uh, uh, was um, there writ large over the course of the last 48 hours as first we all sort of exchanged messages on Friday night as ultimately a game was cancelled with violence on the field, the sort of criticism that we would make to, to other countries around the world and called them uh, every uh, adjective that we could possibly come up with and, 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 uh, and talk about how this could never happen in Australia. But as it turns out, it was us. Um, and then, of course, uh, a little over 24 hours afterwards, we all got up in the middle of the night and watched Argentina and France play what in the early stages of the game, well, not early stages, for the first 75-odd minutes, looked like it was going to be uh, one of the more uh, boring World Cup finals until it just exploded. So, uh, yeah, football uh, never sleeps, Derek. Um, stories uh, from every direction. Yeah, well, if I pick up on the one, I'm probably better qualified to talk about the the World Cup final, I was definitely in the camp that thought this game might be a bit of a snore draw or a, or a boring game. Like, I, you know, I felt like potentially we'd had our best uh, games in the tournament. And quite often when you get two of the biggest teams meeting in a final, you don't always get the best result. You know, we can look at when uh, Italy won the World Cup. It was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty drab affair. 1990 World Cup when West, West uh, Germany, you know, Brazil, obviously winning against Italy in 1994. But then when you look back too, there are plenty of 4-2s and, and lots of other things. But I, I certainly thought it was going to be pretty dull. But, and, and I was vindicated up until about the 70-odd minute. And then a man called Kylian Mbappe decided he needed to change the whole course of the game for his, for his team. And he did, it, he did it three times. But Messi uh, managed to win out the day. And look, yeah, with the, the scenes that we saw from Amy Park, you know, I'd... Um, you know, I'll be. We'll, we'll talk to Willem in a second, of course, who was there and I think has the most valid opinion as a staunch fan of the game over here and someone who goes to plenty 
of games, but clearly when it came across my feed, it, it seems pretty serious, pretty, pretty early on. And look, my my fleeting experiences with uh, A League football is that there are plenty of these uh, young men attending the games. I've seen them outside the pubs, you know, and the way the way that they are before the games uh, and in, in around me in the stadium as well on uh, a cocktail of all sorts of. Uh, substances let's say and and not necessarily there to watch the football so my my view was kind of like you know I'm surprised it hasn't happened already and uh yeah just very very sad to see it all unfold so Willem um your thoughts you were at the game at Amy Park uh, you saw it uh, happen was the uh, was it like the train crash that it appeared to be sitting in the stadium yeah it was ugly you could you could sense it um just very, very disappointing from um, original style Melbourne, as they call themselves, the the victory terrorists. I mean, Derek's right. These uh, the individuals at the head of this organisation, people are quick to praise them when, and they're very quick to praise themselves when things are going well. And they will they are the first organisation to say we are the biggest, the best, the loudest, and the strongest in the land. And that is true in terms of a uh, when when you're supporting the club and when the club's doing well. Um, in, in a truly football sense, they are that way. But this week has once again displayed the arrogance within them that simmers not too far below the surface. It was a week where victory, as they often do, led the protests against the, or the victory fan group, I should say, led the protests against the APL's decision to uh, sell the grand final. It was a week of, of chest beating about walking out on behalf of fans all around the country. And that was all well and good. I was, I was right on board with that. Um, the Wellington supporters managed to do it. The Newcastle supporters managed to do it. Brisbane Raw supporters managed to walk out. Um, it got to 20 minutes on Saturday night and it came time to act. And they displayed that arrogance and refused to walk out and decided that they wanted to make an additional statement um, because for whatever reason, they felt entitled to, uh, to show that they go above and beyond. Uh, what everyone else deems uh, appropriate to show very misguided passion for the club and the game, Rob. So as a, a supporter of Victory and as somebody who goes to a lot of their games and, and observes them at close hand, the the people that, that were at the, the sharp end of invading the pitch and uh, assaulting Tom Glover and uh, and and others in in the process of, of, uh, of this um, riotous behaviour, do you think that these are, are genuine football fans or are they anarchist football fringe dwellers who, who just go to cause trouble? You can be both. Um, they are there every week supporting the team and when things are good and positive, we celebrate them. Um, so I don't think you can wash your hands of it and say they're not football fans. I think they absolutely are, and that speaks to an issue within the game. Okay, all right. We've got plenty of news on the subject, mate. So uh, why don't we, we get on with uh, wrapping the World Cup and um, and this story, which we'll cover in detail, both stories in detail throughout the show. Let's stay with Victory. We'll run through, yeah, as you say, some of the, the finer details. Victory have until Wednesday to respond to Football Australia's show cause notice. Uh, Saturday's pitch invasion saw the Melbourne Derby abandoned and Tom Glover hospitalised. The weekend's league-wide workouts, as we discussed, turned ugly. Uh, Victory's OSM Terrace, about 150, um, failed to oblige with the walkout and instead invaded the pitch. Uh, Tom Glover, referee Alex King and a member of the broadcast staff were assaulted. Uh, 24 hours post the incident, the APL released a statement pledging to work deliberately and exhaustively to ensure our game can never again be used as camouflage for criminals. It was Football Australia who sort of came in over the top with the initial reaction. 
on Sunday morning. Rob, was there anything else you wanted to add? We will speak to Daniel Garb a little bit later on on the matter, but was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we get back to the good stuff, which was, in my opinion, the greatest World Cup final going around? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, just, the, just the confusion and the uncertainty around all of this story, um, whether it was Anthony DiPietro uh, immediately uh, disassociating himself from Danny Townsend's uh, uh, announcement, the, the the level of spin that we discussed last week uh, when the announcement was made and uh, and... In hindsight, um, I think everyone at the APL would would, would agree that uh, uh, that the attempt to spin a positive story about legacy and tradition and uh, creating a new Wembley uh, just fell flat. It, it was poorly executed. Uh, it was a poor idea. It seemed like it was a, a concept that came up uh, um, perhaps in, in a meeting between like-minded people who all seemed must have just agreed furiously with each other uh, without you would think a dissenting voice because if there had been a dissenting voice, then um, they would have made very clear the potential for this to erupt and explode. And uh, I'll be interested to hear Daniel's view on this as to as to, to where we can we can uh, apportion the level of responsibility to the Australian Premier League because I, I the Australian Professional League because I personally don't. Uh, subscribe to the view that they uh, uh, lit the the touch fire on uh, what was inevitably be going to become violence and a pitch invasion. That's directly on the people that did that. Um, their responsibility for causing chaos and uncertainty and confusion and disappointment um, and pulling the rug out from under the feet of Australian football um, within uh, the shadows of the Socceroos mighty performance. Yes, that's on them. I think separately we do need to have a good hard look as a, as a I mean, not that the public can influence things as we've seen this week but I think we do have to look at the APL's fitness to run the game it's come out this week in the Herald and the Age or to run the league I should say it's come out this week um, that the APL had been driven towards that decision to sell the grand final uh, by an inability to generate the requisite number of Paramount Plus subscribers there were sort of quotas that had to be hit year on year we're into the second year of this deal and as a result of not hitting that uh, they and therefore clubs have received less of a a stipend from uh, the broadcasters now, Rob, you've subscribed to Paramount Plus. I've subscribed to Paramount Plus. They have missed the mark so mm. terribly here. Like, we've given them the benefit of the doubt. We've seen it as a slow build, but this is horrific in terms of, of broadcast. Like, they have missed the mark that badly. Like, it, it's a proper disgrace in that regard, I think. If they were hanging their hat on generating revenue off the back of this subscription service, and that's what they've delivered. Um, and then I still have an uneasy feeling about hearing Paramount and Channel 10 dipping into the market to try and buy the cricket rights or the AFL rights, because if they're going to buy those rights, clearly they can broadcast to a better extent than they're doing currently. And they're holding out on Australian football for whatever reason. Well, I, I think we've got to um, attach some responsibility for this negotiation to football for allowing this clause to 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 be included in the contract. I mean, Derek uh, is the expert on television contracts uh, on, on this discussion. So um, it, it's only agreed to at the point where both parties um, uh, are on the same page. So whilst uh, Ten and Paramount uh, uh, introduce that clause, Derek, uh, uh, to introduce a clause that requires certain subscription matters, it, it takes the other party to sign off on the deal. You definitely can't blame Ten slash Paramount. If I was in their negotiating team, I probably would have done exactly the same thing, which is uh, performance-related pay. This would have represented a, a gamble of sorts. Uh, you know, uh, football or soccer has been an underperforming uh yeah format or um code for any broadcaster you know whether it be fox or or any of the others so i I can fully expect that um they would have they would have done it that way and look obviously if 
the subscriptions are going well, then the cash flow is coming through. They can afford to be more generous. And of course, um, they can sell more advertising and more sponsorship. So it's only as valuable as the number of people watching it. So yeah, the you know, in hindsight, you'd say the professional league should have, you know, should have um should have gone for a tougher stance to say, no, you've got to back us in and we need the money to improve the product and you've got to back your sales network to promote this thing and take it to a range of different subscribers and uh, sorry so sponsors and advertisers but but they didn't um and yeah this is this is the impact we'll jump back to the world cup um before we welcome in marcelo oh, there's so much to discuss out of this game argentina the bottom line is that they are world champions for the third time uh they defeated france on penalties Lionel messi and angel di maria two gents who have been around the argentine system for a long long time look to have sealed the win up until the 80th minute before the killing mbappe uh, inspired France, rouse themselves. Mbappe ultimately going on to become just the second man to score a final in a world, uh, a hat trick in a World Cup final. Locked at three, all they went to the spot. Emiliano Martinez and Gonzalo Montiel, the difference. And for Messi, it was his crowning glory. Derek, I want to ask you about Emiliano Martinez. He's a bit of a hero here. He's a guy who spent his uh, a lot of his career on the bench. He's been patient. He's been through Arsenal, but it's all come in a rush for him now. He's a Copper America champion, a World Cup champion, and he also likes to make it about himself. He's quite the character. Well, he's he's had an amazing career arc because it wasn't that long ago that he was kind of um, slumming it at Arsenal on as the third choice goalkeeper, sitting behind the likes of uh, Burnt Burnt Leno uh, and Aaron Ramsdale, and. You know, he. I can still remember Martinez at Arsenal as a fan, and he'd be the sort of guy that'd be wheeled out in the dead rubber. Um, uh, you know, it, dead rubber games, and it'd almost be an ironic cheer amongst the fans when they'd go, "Emmy Martinez," and everyone'd be like, Wee! And it was, it would be, you know, no one really cared. He was just this guy, and we didn't even know who who he was. So to go from that kind of position where he's had 15 games for Arsenal and then a bunch of different loans that really only added up to maybe 30 or 40 matches to suddenly being, a, you know, having that run in the team uh, that that led to him being picked up by Aston Villa. And then it's, it's an amazing story. And yes, of course, he histrionics in the final and got the golden glove as well. So you know, I've you know, I was quite pleased for Emmy in the end. All right, boys, let's wrap it up there. We have got a very sleepy tired Marcella Mora y Araujo. I think it's around five thirty AM in the morning over there. And uh, we were gonna talk to her a bit later in our recording cycle, but she's just messaged and says she needs to get some sleep. So uh, uh, we want to have a chat to her in amidst the excitement uh, of Buenos Aires and Argentina in general, uh, which uh, is uh, a country that lives, eats, breathes and sleeps football and uh, and have just won their third World Cup uh, in the last 24 hours. So stick around. Marcella Mora Iarao from The Guardian next on box to box Christmas isn't far away, so make sure your family enjoys a feast with Hoyts, herbs, spices and pickled vegetables. I know my go-to... One of my famous recipes amongst my family, and it nails the Christmas theme every single time, is the glazed ham. Willem, do you like a glazed ham for Christmas? Absolutely, do I ever. Having spent many years working in uh, in butcher shops, this is a very busy time of the year. Rob, I've seen more than my fair share of hams, and I have sampled them as well. So absolutely, big ham man. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, what's the, the number one go-to dish? You've got to stud your glazed ham with one particular uh, spice. 
uh, is it the aniseed? Oh, you're close. It looks the same. It's yeah. cloves. You don't want to put aniseed on, on hand, but you're, you're thinking along the right lines. So what you need is the whole glaze, whole cloves for the glazed ham. Derek, uh, I mentioned you'd be a glazed ham kind of guy. Uh, do you know what? Being a, being a pom, you know, we're probably still, even after nine years, looking at the turkey as the, mm-hmm. the way to go. And mm-hmm. I think if you went to your Hoyt um, cupboard in the house and pulled out the thyme, mm-hmm. rosemary, oregano and sage, you'd be on to a winner with your uh, with your turkey, if that's the way you want to go. And I didn't even email you the script, mate. Well done, because that is exactly what I would have said. And if you want to get your pork crackling perfectly, get the Hoyt's rock salt out. And if you want to, to spice up your salads or add a little flavour, the olives and the pickled vegetables, the giardiniera, that classic Italian uh, uh, pickled vegetables with uh, that real pungent vinegary smack that'll just clear your nostrils out with no problems whatsoever. We hope from the boys on Box to Box that you are looking forward to a great Christmas with your loved ones and uh, and make sure when uh, when you do that final bit of shopping at Coles, Woolworths and your local independent supermarkets that you pick up whatever you need from Hoyt's because not only will it be good value, it'll be outstanding flavour. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, in the world of football royalty, there is royalty on the pitch, but there is also royalty offered. And when it comes to journalistic uh, royalty, you don't go much higher in the pecking order than our next guest, a very good friend of the show from The Guardian, a proud Argentinian woman, Marcela Mora Ijarawa. Welcome back to the show, Marcela. You've been up all night. I have been up all night, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. Uh, well, I know I got up at 2 a.m. our time, um, and as we record, it's about 8 p.m., so I've been up all day after the excitement, and I was sort of thinking as the, the match uh, sort of petered out with about 15 minutes to go, okay, well, it's not going to be one of the great World Cup finals, but Argentina win, and I can get to go back to sleep after full time, but that changed. Mar- Marcella, you went back home after you watched the knockouts, the earlier knockout stages, to be with your loved ones and watch the match in Buenos Aires. Uh, um, explain to us the environment you were in and the roller coaster of emotions when you, at one moment you felt that it was done and dusted and the next minute it was ripped from your grasp. You got it again and then had to win it three times eventually. Just the very fact of playing the World Cup final is an enormous achievement. You can't really hope for much more than that. That you know, that's the objective. That's the ultimate aim. And then there is one winner, but the but the, the the possibilities of what can be shown in terms of talent, art, and conflict and battle is just the seven games. And uh, I think it, it's been a real roller coaster of emotion the whole tournament because. After the first game and that defeat against Saudi Arabia, Argentina could have ended their World Cup dream at any point. Every single match was a final, as they like to say here. So it's like we got used to this, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. Oh, yes, we're going home. Oh, no, we're not. And today, uh, or yesterday, you know, this this very, very long day (laughs) of the World Cup, it was... um, it it was really kind of it felt familiar almost like what had already happened with the Netherlands and it was 
everyone knew not to celebrate or get excited or relax after the two goals that, that felt, you know, things were settled. And it was, like, it was almost, a, a, you know, foretold. Some, I think it's hard to um, know that, you know, some people got very, very worked up about this World Cup, very anxious, like truly anxious, especially in the early stages. Then there was a kind of joy that we, you know, got the quarterfinals and the semis, and that was like real uplifting and elation, and, and already people poured into the streets and celebrations began and so on. And so, to finally win it, I think there was that moment when you know that last penalty kick was taken, and and you realised it had happened. That everyone had to kind of do a, a, a double take, and you you can see managers still only kind of waiting and pausing before he crumbles. And like I saw lots of people around uh, the stadium and the and the television sets had that same reaction. It was like a, wait, wait, are you sure? Was it in a, a portion of reflection? And then it was just an outpouring of emotion. I don't know if it was pent up from the whole tournament or if just that's just what football does to us. But I don't know, anyone wasn't crying and perhaps sobbing and crying a lot for, for a consistently long time. Could you put it into context for our listeners, just with the emotion, not just of winning any international tournament, but just the kind of the long period since the since the Maradona era, and what what that kind of compounded year on year, the near misses in nineteen ninety, uh, and some and some of the other tournaments, how how kind of that was all bound up in the emotional reaction. I think for those of us who've been privileged and lucky enough to live through three um it's a combination of rem- obviously remembering the other two uh, world cup wins and maybe who, who was around and where we were and what you know the circumstances of each one they were very different the 1978 world cup played here with an extraordinary kind of poignant memory for those of us who lived through it uh, but then there's a whole generation of, of not just children, but like young adults who have only known the messy era and the messy years, and they don't have that kind of baggage. So this is the first World Cup they've won, and they and they see it and experience it as something that's deserved after so many, uh, you know, finals, two Cup America finals, one Cup America one, 2014 World Cup final, and so on. So it's a it's for them, this is really like the culmination of, of, a, of a project that they've witnessed. And I think for older people, although it's amazing and beautiful and incredibly moving, there's also a sort of, you know, knowledge that life does actually go on exactly as it did before after winning a World Cup. It doesn't really make much of a difference to anything. It's just a, a, a party and a and a bit of joy for, for a while. But that I got that sense very strongly in the streets, that there were there were young people for whom this is the first, and, and their joy and their relish and their excitement for Messi, as well as because of Messi, 
is something else. It really, um, I think this has really got to the heart of, of the young. You know, it's true love and warmth that people feel for him. Alexis McAllister, who is at Brighton of all, of all teams and um, probably came along in the squad, but maybe didn't, it didn't start, didn't start the final. And then also Emmy Martinez as well, who, you know, two or three years ago was Arsenal's, I don't know, third choice goalkeeper. And then all of a sudden he's um, doing his dances and all his different things in the World Cup final and, and making a big contribution. So beyond Messi, could you maybe spend a bit of time talking about those two players in particular or, or any others that you think are the kind of unsung heroes? Well, I, d- I don't think there, ha- there are any unsung heroes. And I think that in itself is interesting. Messi is very much a, a, someone who needs a cohesive functioning system and machinery that, that works around him. He's very different from Maradona in that respect. He's not someone that can just, you know, you don't just get the ball to Messi and let him run with it. And, and he solves everything. He needs um, to know where, where, you know, the spaces and the times of the other parts of the whole. And, uh, and then he can conjure up his magic. So they've all become quite um, important people in in the you know the, the squad and and in fact the management team is also a team. It's not Scaloni alone. Scaloni kind of rallied Walter Samuel and Pablo Aymar, who are themselves very much loved uh, ex footballers, possibly the best in their respective positions at some time or the other. In, in their, you know, in their, at their prime. And this idea of a team that has become known as the Scalonetta, which is like the play on Scaloni's name, has really um, taken hold. I think Dibu Martinez, obviously, uh, Dibu's his nickname because he looks a little bit like a, like a cartoon, although he's huge, uh, is, is really very adored. And, because you know the, the the penalty situation means the goalkeeper becomes very important, but he's also incredibly warm and uh, emotionally intelligent and articulate. He speaks very good English. Um, he has a, a a shrink or a, a therapist that he likes to discuss um, how much that helps him and so on. He's an advocate for mental health and. Uh, in young people, he's a fascinating character. Um, Alexis McAllister, I think I would put in a in a in a bracket of the the much younger figures to emerge, like Enzo Fernandez and Julian Alvarez. And I think Julian Alvarez is possibly the true new star that you know has come out of as well. Although I believe Enzo Fernandez won the uh, award for the best up and coming player. I may have got that wrong, but I think that's what happened. And they are—they uh, have an energy. And again, Scaloni said the other day, you know, at their age, you just want to devour the world. And they go out there and they do it. They just—they're fearless and they're cool and they don't tire and they're fast and they're—they're they're not just fast runners. They're fast decision makers. They can, you know, they're precise at great speed. I think they're very exciting players, and um, well, hopefully this is the beginning of many years to come of enjoying them. McAllister, who specifically who you asked about, of course, is the son of a 
a player that we all know well in Argentina to be an emblematic defender for Boca Juniors and then went on to have a career in politics and then went on to be minister for sport and uh, under the last government before this one. So he is a very, very well-known figure. Um, and uh, we, we, he's known as the Colorado because he's got red hair, which is perhaps something one shouldn't really say, but that in those days, it's just followed out of this and followed out of that. And uh, yes, I mean, football dynasty, which makes sense of, you know, the young taking over where the oldies have left off uh, more poignant. I think these I think these kids have actually been terrific in terms of first of all being able to do a lot of what was asked of them uh, seamlessly and and secondly kind of executing Messi's clever plans uh, to to perfection. They've they've obviously got a very good understanding with him which is lovely to watch. And one final question before we let you go. No discussion of Argentina winning a World Cup would be complete without the contrast with uh, the loss of another member of the the pantheon uh, of sporting greats, the lone Argentinian sporting greats. It's been a little over 12 months since Diego Maradona passed away. And I know we've asked you this question, as many have asked you before, Marcela, uh, whether you felt that uh, Messi needed to win the World Cup to to Frankie's legacy, and you have always been very clear about the belief that he didn't need to to win this. So now that he's done it, um, I don't imagine that you've changed your view. But how does your view uh, evolve as a result? Well, now now that he's done it, my view is totally irrelevant because he's done it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that. Um, I think you know. I think obviously. It's, it's terrific for him. It was quite sweet, actually, whether he just picked the, the cup up almost like it was a baby and kind of said, yeah, I always really wanted it, so it's really nice to get it. <laughs> but um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think he's become more distinct from Maradona as he's grown more mature and, you know, he's a 35-year-old that's commanded the scene throughout the whole World Cup. That in itself is unbelievable and a massive achievement and he's and he's reached his prime building up slowly throughout consistently but that in itself is quite different to Maradona who was you know much more volatile and up and down and turbulent if you like but also I think Messi um, has done a rather clever thing of, of involving Maradona in his speech and in the ideas and the, you know in the talks he gives the players as captain and so he's always saying Diego's watching over us, Diego's with us, we'll do this for Diego which is very inclusive and, and you know nods in the direction of the great Diego the, the, the god of Argentinian football but also I think quite cleverly distances Messi himself from Diego so they're not one or merging or fusing or uh, you know a lot of a lot of talk has been um directed at this idea that that, that Messi is becoming more Maradona-like as he reached, you know, closer and closer to attaining the dream of the World Cup. I, I don't think that's the case. I think he's becoming more and more distinctive from Maradona. 
and the way in which this cup was won and his re- reaction to it and the time of his life in which it happened means he will be a very different post-football uh, celebrity from uh, from what Maradona was, probably. I mean, we, we don't know. But he seems to be someone who's going to be very different as an ex-player. If, if and when he ever becomes an ex-player, because he doesn't look like he needs to stop anytime soon. He's obviously got it. No, he does look like he could go on, but uh, uh, he has retired once or twice before from the international game, so uh, wouldn't be beyond him to make a comeback uh, if he uh, can keep uh, fit. But uh, look, he's uh, he's achieved that incredible uh, result of, of winning the World Cup. Uh, as has Argentina, and uh, well, Australia will take our little slice of glory there, Marcelo, knowing that the last, or well, the only two times Australia has made the knockout stage, it took the ultimate World Cup champion to to beat the might of uh, the uh, the Socceroos. So, uh, uh, <laughs> on that lighter note, um, congratulations, Marcelo, <laughs> and uh, and thank you for everything you've done for us uh, uh, over recent times to to bring uh, you know a perspective to our Aussie fans. Uh, of uh, of uh, Argentina in the World Cup. Well, it's always nice to go out to someone who then goes on to win the cup. Argentina did it in 2018, and they lost to France in the quarterfinals. And then a lot of people took great pride in the fact that only France uh, could could knock Argentina out. So I know exactly where you're coming from, and I do think mm. it was a joy to watch Australia. Um, and you know. Uh, hopefully next next World Cup they will be again the Socceroos going perhaps even further Marcella and on that optimistic note we will say farewell thank you very and much Marcella Mora Iharao uh, a, um, a wonderful uh, writer if you are not familiar with her written work jump on the Guardian and um, and you'll read some of the best football work and uh, and analysis of football in general but of this World Cup in particular. Okay, stick around after the break. Unfortunately, we do have to return to uh, matters domestic with uh, the obvious uh, fallout from the uh, the Melbourne Derby on the weekend. We're going to talk to Daniel Garb from the ABC and keep up and see what we can pick, unpick from that uh, fiasco 48 hours on. Okay, Willem, have you uh, bought the fragrances yet? We've been talking about this since you got back from Qatar. I've bought the fragrances, absolutely. The uh, the Giorgio Armani, the SK23, and the VB around Christmas time, all available. Oh, that sold out a couple of years ago. Where'd you get it at, Willem? Chemist Warehouse. It's not of course you there. did. Yes, exactly. Right now, you can get amazing deals on fragrances. Calvin Klein Euphoria. I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. 50 mils eau de parfum, $34.99, save $55. Derek, um, <clears throat> have you uh, got the stocking fillers? The Estee Lauder, beautiful yet for the lovely Sarah? Not yet, Rob, but now that you've reminded me, I'll be going straight down there in the morning. Because when you do, you're going to save $50. Only $49.99, 30 mils eau de parfum. And make sure you get some of that Hugo Boss number one for yourself because you're a rugged sort of an outdoors kind of man living in Hillsville and you want to smell like that rugged outdoors man that you are. Um, and uh, and you'll be only spending $39.99 when you do it and saving 69 in the process. Will it, and, will it uh, keep the mosquitoes away, Rob? Uh, you can get some DEET mosquito repellent, but that doesn't fall under the Christmas range, Derek. Uh, but uh, yes, it won't keep the mosquitoes away. It may be even attracted. But get down to your chemist warehouse. If you're looking for a great fragrance for somebody you love, something that uh, is a little bit special, get on down to chemist warehouse or get onto the website, click and collect because you get a great deal and you get a lovely gift 
and you'll be able to look after the loved ones in your family with the great savings that are at Chemist Warehouse every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, on any other week, as we said off the top of the show, our next story would have been the lead, but it was the World Cup final, so we let football win the argument or for the story judgment for the day. But it doesn't lessen the drama and the chaos of the events of Amy Park at the Melbourne Victory City Derby and the fallout, which is stirring a little over 48 hours on as we see today. Monday evening, we're recording our time. Uh, another four people have come forward and uh, been arrested by Victorian police and a man who's been covering the A-League since the very first ball was kicked off back in 2006 is Daniel Garb from the ABC from Keep Up. And uh, regretfully, we welcome you back to the show to discuss uh, the fallout from, from this situation. How are you, Garby? Yeah, thanks, boys. Good to be with you again. The Australian Professional Leagues and Danny Townsend uh, lit a, a fire that uh, that had an inevitable end. On the other hand, uh, there was a decision that was poorly timed and poorly communicated and hooligans and thugs took events out of control. But where do you sit in between those ends of the argument, mate? Yeah, as bad as the decision may have been and as it was managed by the APL over the grand final relocation, it's nowhere near close to an excuse for what transpired on Saturday night. I mean, that is just so far beyond the realms of what's acceptable. It was a hugely dark day for Australian football um, and potentially as bad as we've ever seen in the domestic game here in Australia. So <laughs> you can have issues with that decision and it was a hugely controversial decision. You can understand why there's so much emotion around it. And you can understand why fans want to protest and walk out of the ground on the team and try and get a reversal. But every single week, if you every single week till the end of the season, if it is something you are that passionate, you can understand if certain fans are. The two points of what we saw on Saturday night, regardless of what Tommy Glover might have done by hurling the flare back into the area, that does not get close to excusing what transpired. The fans running the stadium, injuring a player, the game into the worst kind of disrepute imaginable. Um, it was just disgraceful, and I hope that they are all banned for life. I really do. I hope they are never allowed, those fans who are seen to have rushed the ground and affected the game like that and injured a player and put a referee in danger like that. I just hope they are never allowed back into a professional game in Australia. Is, is this a new group that's infecting the active fan groups that is, is not, in your view, connected to the, the, the core football fans? Or, uh, or or is this the active fan groups and a militant group within that uh, section of so-called fans who are, who are going rogue? We've known for a while that we have had groups inside active supporters at several clubs that have gone very close to stepping over the line and have stepped over the line before. Every code has supporters who do that, who cross the line. And football gets a bad rap. And the way in which we support in football with the, the act of gathering um, and the emotion and the passion means that, you know, sometimes it can boil over. Um, and we've defended our supporters for numerous years for good reason because we know that football culture is different to other codes in Australia. 
Um, but there's no defending this. And, and I'm not sure how it's boiled over in that manner. Perhaps the the over-emotion of the reaction to the grand final decision has led to it in a way. I mean, I, I agree it deserves condemnation, that decision. I don't agree with the decision. Perhaps it was a bit out of the, out of control as well. You know, people saying the game has died now and the league's gone and all this sort of stuff. It was never going to be that drastic. I mean, it was a, a poorly managed decision as we've discussed. Um, I would have liked to have seen a reversal, but the owners are there for a reason to try and navigate the league through difficult times and they say this is the, the best decision. Protest all you like, try get a reversal. But maybe the reaction to that had an impact to, on the weekend. And some of the supporters felt they could take supporters. I use that term loosely. I'm not sure if they really are. Um, they're more antagonists, some of them, than anything. More power than what they thought. Maybe it all just Daniel, boiled over as a result of that reaction to the grand final decision. Daniel, setting the victory situation aside, which can be tough to do given it's such a prominent uh, event that's going to stick in the forefront mm. of our minds for a long time, to what extent has the past week prior to Saturday eroded or not your faith that the APL uh, is the right body to run the game in the country successfully given the fragmentation of messaging we saw with them, uh, Di Pietro, Chris Fong, Tony Sage, seemingly yeah. at odds with the original messaging? How are you feeling about the, the body running the league uh, currently after the week just gone? Still early days in the APL tenure, let's not forget that. Um, this is a fair setback in terms of their progression. You know, I think the start of the season was looking really good. I think we were on a, a nice path. I think you could tell there was a lot more content being distributed by the APL that led to a lift in interest in the A-League, in the environment around the A-League, the crowd, um, and so on. And, and that flowed off the back of the lead-up to a World Cup and then into a World Cup as well. But there, there were really good vibes. And, yeah, this decision has certainly affected things, the grand final decision, which I don't think has been handled well. But that doesn't mean that you cast a line through their management of the game completely. Um, you know, you judge these things over time. Um, but I don't think they can be blamed for the fan reaction on the weekend. Their reaction to that and the way in which they handle it is something that uh, certainly is going to be watched very closely. Um, but there was absolutely no excuse for the way in which these supporters reacted. Um, if the protests had lingered all season long, that would have been a different story. And uh, maybe they should have, <laughs> as in contrast to what's happened here on the weekend. Um, but the, the management now, the fans have probably lost all their power in this battle over the grand final relocation, have they not? I mean, the way in which they've reacted. You know, they, it's not really a talking point now um, because it's just boiled over in such a disgraceful manner. Now let's see how the powers that be deal with it. But yeah, it's, it's been a setback for them, everything that's happened, certainly. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not one that can't be recovered. I mean, again, some of the rhetoric that we've seen recently that the league's dead and the game's gone is so over the top. People, I think, just make too many sweeping judgments in the moment. The game is bigger than all of this. And it will be, and it will bounce back. Whether these individuals at the APL are the ones to see us through, well, we just don't know yet. I think it's too early to say. Maybe I'm looking too much into this and maybe digging for something that's not there, but what does it say that it was Football Australia on Sunday morning that were the body uh, that, that were on the front foot uh, with a statement, whereas it took the APL almost 24 hours to release a statement? Is that maybe just the APL as a young organisation perhaps 
shocked and taking stock or is, is there sort, sort of something there that, you know, in times of crisis, it is still Football Australia that come to the fore in, in running the league and managing sort of more broader societal engagement? Yeah, that was interesting. Um, I don't know. Perhaps there was communication between the two bodies and Football Australia said, we want to take the lead on this and then you come out afterwards and, and say your bit. Perhaps that was a strategic move. I liked that Australia were the first to come out and speak about it personally. And even though they are not the body that looks over the A-League, it was a whole of the game moment. And so I think it was important that Football Australia spoke first and foremost, even though they don't preside over the league day-to-day anymore. So I didn't really have an issue with that as, as such, and maybe it was a strategic one. So... Yeah, I think it was fine. I think the reaction has been okay. That doesn't mean that it undoes any of the damage. You're not long back from Qatar yourself. Uh, you witnessed firsthand the uh, the Socceroos, uh, uh, what ended up being a, a tournament in which you know most good judges agree that they overachieved. Um, it took the uh, ultimate world champions uh, right to the end of, of a game. Uh, Australia, outside of... Uh, the uh, the hardcore football fans uh, had engaged with the Socceroos and we'd been getting international headlines for the right reasons. Uh, do you subscribe to the view that that is all washed away now and we start from scratch or uh, in this world of big headlines and social media and the 24-hour news cycle um, is is what we've seen an over reaction to to the status of football in this country uh, yeah. depending on how the uh, APL and Football Australia handle the, the fallout of this? Well, they're two different things. There's the game as a whole and then there's the A-League. Now, the big question while we were in Qatar was will the momentum from the Socceroos have an impact on the A-League? That's what everyone was asking. One of the big questions after the Socceroos' fantastic performance at the World Cup. That part of it has been affected, yes. I think the impact of the national team and how that would flow into the A-League in terms of TV ratings and crowds and interest and so on, that's been affected by what we've seen in the last grand final decision and then the fan, uh, this disgraceful fan behaviour on the weekend. In terms of the whole of the game, they are two different things because the game in Australia is bigger than just the A-League. There are so many different aspects to Australian football. There's the national teams, there's community football, there's... Um, the way in which you look at our Aussies abroad, there's all these different things. The NPL, um, I still think the impact of the Socceroos on certain other aspects of the game, um, grassroots level and so on, is is big. Is a big one. And obviously our national teams. And I still think we'll receive a lot of benefits from that, especially financially. Of course, the windfall from the Socceroos doing so well at the World Cup has given Football Australia funds to... Uh, hopefully beef up the game more. So, no, I don't think it washes away everything on the whole of the game, but it definitely affected the momentum that was hope, that we hoped would roll into the A-League off the back of the World Cup. Hey, Garby, we'll let you go, mate. Um, thank you so much for, for jumping on and giving us your, your views. Uh, we know that you're, you're passionate about football and, you, and your role in it, and um, and you take uh, uh, your remarks considered as they are as uh, seriously as anyone in the game. So for thanks for, uh, for jumping on, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Yes, this is Box to Box. This is, well, the final World Cup corner in its current iteration before we, we change tack and uh, and work towards uh, the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand uh, next year, and there'll be plenty of qualifiers as they eventually play out. But, uh, but Willem, uh, a couple of little uh, storylines uh, that we haven't covered in the show so far that uh, have, uh, have made, uh, you know, not necessarily the headlines, but, uh, but uh, made our observations at the very least. The third-place playoff, Rob, I think fits the bill of one that doesn't generate the top headlines but deserves to be touched on. Croatia, uh, they are very proud of it. They've sealed their third top three finish at the World Cup. Zlatko Delic has called it a golden layer. Uh, some nice goals. Josko Gvardiol, who was a young man with it all in front of him, uh, and Mislav Orsic as well, came either side of Ashraf Dari's equaliser all in the first half. And Luka Modric awarded the tournament's bronze ball uh, for third best player in the tournament. Unless anyone else wants to touch on that, Derek, I'll throw to you on the news that Gareth Southgate is going to keep going. Uh, FA Chief Mark Bullingham has said the preparation for the 2024 Euros starts now. I think that's the right decision. I think that is a tournament that's actually not too far away. I know you want to treat these things as a four-year cycle. So if he just gets through to the end of the Euros, then it's only two years on for the next World Cup. So then you probably go on from there. But I think considering how much the players liked him, I think that is probably the right call. Uh, he is England's most successful uh, manager since Alf Ramsey. So, you know, I think you have to factor that in. You also have to factor in, well, who else would they appoint? And, yeah, the, the, the tabloids like surfacing names like po- Pochettino and Thomas Tuchel, but I don't think either of those are realistic. I think both managers would want to get back into top-tier cut and thrust domestic football and European football rather than rather than the national team. And I think if Southgate's going to look at anyone, he just needs to look at uh, Didier Deschamps, uh, you know, a similar kind of um, manager who seems to have found his level at the international game, not necessarily the most celebrated uh, club manager, but has found it there following a successful, obviously in Deschamps' case, an extremely successful uh international and club career but I just think the buck needs to stop with England now they've, they've got a semi-finals they've got to a final they're quite unfortunate in many ways to to lose to France but this is a golden generation of talent with Saka and Foden and Rice and Bellingham and all, all these all these other players and and uh, they just keep losing against big teams I mean ultimately they just keep losing to, you know, the Belgians, the the Croatias, the Italys, the Frances in these major tournaments, and they've got to find a way to turn this around. And and uh, as a big cricket man, uh, you know, I look at just the transformation of the England cricket team recently, and they didn't change the personnel; they just changed the philosophy. And unfortunately, this England football team came in with all the personnel. But I just again, I think all of us just been quite put our finger on what England were doing wrong but it was just not very convincing and it didn't feel like they were going to take the game by the scruff of the neck and assert their dominance almost to be cowed by so-called you know big reputation rivals so yes the right decision Willem but I don't think they can go through another cycle of just going through the motions they've got to find a way to beat the big teams. It's been a World Cup since it was awarded to Qatar in 2010 that's had debate and conjecture and discussion at every single turn, and so it was right through to the very last. Uh, FIFA's decision to dress Lionel Messi in a bisht while presenting him with the World Cup trophy uh, has sparked debate and conjecture and 
rage in some quarters. Uh, it's come to light globally that the Bisht is a formal robe only worn on very, very special occasions. Uh, royalty dignitaries uh, would wear it, grooms on their wedding day, graduates at graduation ceremonies, and to an extent, it's been explained by experts that it is the mark of ultimate respect and to dress messy uh, in such a in such garb is, uh, is exactly that. Can understand, though, that these are images that endure forever um, and that the, the blue and white shirt, you want to see it, in its sort of full glory, lifting up the World Cup trophy. So I can understand the, the both sides to it, but I think it's just been another example personally, Rob, of an opportunity to learn a little bit more about a culture in the Middle East that not many would know too many about. I think maybe it's easy to, to point the finger when you see, I think you've uh, labelled him once or twice as a goose, Gianni Invertino, marking him tighter than anyone else did uh, throughout the course of the 90 minutes, as Gary Lineker said. Where did you where did you fall on this one? Yeah, so as you say, the Bish traditional piece of clothing worn by Arab warriors after victory in battle and also by royals. So, you know, wonderful background story. And uh, um, when I saw it, uh, I, I was showing... I, I'd gone to bed not long after full time to try and catch an hour's sleep after the game. So I didn't see um, this until I woke up and, and, and watched the highlights and... Uh, was showing my wife and at the moment I saw it, I, th- I just thought instantly this is going to cause controversy um, and and my I've got to be uh, uh, honest that my visceral reaction was that w- what are they doing this for in, in this environment um, hijacking this moment from uh, um, the uh, the Argentine uh, team and 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 the nation of Argentina um, covering the, the the blue and white shirt of the Albi Celeste uh, and 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 um, immortalising the uh, the garb in in the, the photos that we're going to and will be um, uh, look back on for, for generations to come. But in in the half day or so I've had to think about it since. I think the biggest problem with this is really the PR issue because you know we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And you know anyone who listens to this show often enough knows that I'm I'm quite proud of my half Middle Eastern heritage. My mother was born in a little village in uh, the mountains of Lebanon uh, in 1933. So uh, you know I'm half Aussie, half Lebanese. So I, I sort of get that. That straddling the divide, and uh, and as you say, Willem, if if it's about educating people and and showing the rest of the world a culture, a long and rich and vibrant culture, and telling a story, then tell the story. But I think where it fell flat was that uh, it appeared to be a hijack moment, where obviously the organisers uh, knew what they were going to do, but if anyone had an ounce of common sense in that organising committee, they would have realised that it was going to cause uh, some kind of pushback and backlash. So they they should have put out a press release prior saying, and even well before the event at some point, saying that no matter who wins the tournament, that is going to be part of the uh, the ceremony. And I think if you go back to 2004, when Greece held the Olympics, that uh, uh, that the um, that the gold medalists, in fact, all of the medalists were uh, were presented with a, a laurel wreath. Um, so you know there was no pushback back then. So um, you know, in, in hindsight, I think it was just a PR, poor PR execution. So uh, amongst all of the other dramas around the World Cup, I, I think this uh, ultimately um, is an unfortunate scenario that could have played out a lot better. Maybe, Derek, they could have had the two captains walk out onto the pitch wearing them, I don't know. But I think credit to Messi. Maybe he'd been worded up. Maybe he was just oblivious. Maybe he was just so happy with the World Cup that he didn't care. But he took it with uh, with good grace and good class. Congratulations to Argentina. Congratulations to France. Uh, and congratulations to uh, uh, all of the, the teams in the tournament for giving us a, a lot of entertainment and joy uh, on the park in the, the past month or so. And... Uh, 
and um, to uh, to the boys uh, on this podcast, wishing you a Merry Christmas. Um, and, um, and Willem, um, you're back. Uh, you've got over the jet lag, I'd imagine, by now. No, I'm well and truly back in business, Rob. All right, well done. Edge is back next week. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. Yes, no worries. It'll be uh, Edge in the hot seat, Derek, as well. Um, the fun boy three, as Dino would have called it back in the day. <laughs> thank you, Derek. Well done, mate. Thanks, gents. And today, my bon Natale. And uh, thanks again for all of your work, as you always do, putting together the best show we can possibly manufacture under the circumstances. To all our listeners, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you as well. Please subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at box to box nts Make sure you leave us a rating on your podcast catcher. That always helps uh, uh, for us to grow. Make sure you like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop. And we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.